ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hilary Harper with you. Hello. The internet is full of productivity hacks to help us get the most out of our limited hours. One time management guru says syncing your work schedule with your menstrual cycle will tap your peak energy levels. Okay. But what if the problem isn't a lack of time at all, but the way we think about our time in this time and this culture? Artist and author Jenny O'Dell has some thoughts on other more meaningful ways to think about time. She'll share those with us in a moment on Life Matters from NAM, Melbourne. Many of us feel a pressure to think of our time as a kind of currency. We need to be efficient with it, productive, make the best use of it. But that kind of pressure can leach the joy from life. We're going to look today at some other ways that we can think about time and how we spend it, even if we do still have to live in this culture and this economy, which is so attached to the idea of time as money. Have you started thinking differently about your time and managing your time differently? Have you been able to step away from that compartmentalised, quantified spreadsheet idea of time to a different way of experiencing your time in the world? I'd love to hear how that has happened for you. Artist and author Jenny O'Dell's new book is Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock. And it's been described as surprisingly reassuring, among many other more glowing accolades. Jenny, welcome to Life Matters. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It feels very weird to tackle a subject like this in about 27 minutes, you know, to have such a specific (laughs) amount of time. But this is where radio world, I guess, intersects with the ideas that you've been writing about. Tell us first what's wrong with that. You describe it, I guess, as a kind of self-help type approach where we're coached on how to do the necessary tasks efficiently so we can wring some more time out of our days for fun. Yeah, well, I mean, I I can certainly understand the appeal of that kind of advice. Um, You know, we would all love to have a little more time in the day and have more control over our time. But I think the problem arises um, from this concept that everyone, um, as they say, has 24 hours in a day um, and and sort of imagining those hours as being equal for everyone. Today we're looking at her new book, which is called Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, which looks at some, some ways that our concept of time today is a specific historical and cultural, uh, culturally mediated concept of time. Uh, and it's very much tied to the kind of economy that we live in. I'd love to hear from you if you have carved out a different way of thinking about time, if you've managed to kind of wrench your experience of time away from that hour by hour uh, mode that we often uh, experience time as uh, when we go to work, for example, or when we're locked into a school day. Jenny O'Dell, I think we have you back on the line. You were talking about... Yeah, I'm sorry uh, about that. That's okay. You were talking about the appeal of of that idea of, uh, you know, uh, how to be more productive and efficient in order to uh, free up time for ourselves. What's wrong with that idea, though? Yeah, so that type of advice tends to work on the assumption that everyone has 24 hours in a day, um, 24 equal hours. And so if you look at that type of self-help, it typically doesn't uh, mention larger things like 
your job um, or the fact that women are typically expected to do more work both on the job and at home. Like these are things that obviously are larger than the individual. Um, and so I think the problem is kind of one of scope. Like there are obviously things you can do to become more efficient in what you're doing, but you will run up against, you know, the very hard limits of, you know, like things that you have, uh, like resources that you do or do not have access to support that you do or don't have. And I think it also kind of obscures avenues toward collective actions. Um, for example, you know, just labor organizing for, you know, more time or to be better compensated for one time. Like these are things that um, one person can't do alone with their own time. That's one of the things I really loved about this book is that it, it, it takes very abstract ideas that might seem a bit airy-fairy before you delve into them and weds them to a very practical material understanding of how the world works. In that context, Jenny, could you tell us a bit about your thoughts about the idea of work-life balance and and that idea of control of time? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think it's, it's just helpful to think about the history of something like the industrial concept of time, which I think feels very um, maybe removed, depending on your job. Um, it's something that feels historical. But when you re- really look at it and you think about the ways that we organize and talk about our time, you see that that history is really alive and how you know we make the assumptions that time is money, that you know if I give you some of my time, I have less, like really thinking of it as this kind of like material almost that you would use in a factory. And I think, you know, trying to think beyond that, um, it opens up some other options. Like I'm one of the people that I talked to for the book was a woman who runs a Facebook group for working mothers. And we were talking about how time management self-help doesn't really doesn't really feel realistic for her and feels a little bit insulting um, because she is a mother and she's, you know, having to do all of the work that that entails. And so um, she made this comment um, that, you know, it seemed like it might be more helpful for her to get six other moms together and one of them would make dinner for everyone else one night, you know, each night of the week. And that's, you know, that's on the one hand a practical solution, but it's also the beginning of a an acknowledgement of a more kind of social concept of time as opposed to the idea of, you know, every person having their own hours in the day. It also taps into that idea, doesn't it, that there are different ways of experiencing time. I mean, if you're at work and you're looking at the clock, time can seem broken up into hourly moments. But when you're at home with a small child, it's a very different kind of warping experience of time. Moments can feel very slow or very (laughs) quick. You talk about that, don't you, that stretchy experience of time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something very intuitive, actually, about the idea of time not being money, even though um, most of us have to live in that world. Um, I do think that in the book, I am trying to reach for that that everyday intuitive experience that we have. Um, I mean, I can say I, <laughs> I'm visiting from California and I um, you know, have been very aware of the ways that time lives in the body through something like jet lag um, and the fact that you, you know, your, your body um, is typically, you know, uh, you are living in these sort of like rhythms and, you know, every hour is not the same. So, um, so I think, yeah, just kind of, you know, physical and psychological variation in time, things like seasons, flowering, like there are so many examples around us of the ways in which time is not uniform. 
We're speaking with artist and writer Jenny O'Dell, whose latest book, Saving Time, really explores our ideas about time and productivity and how they're often wedded together and looks at some different ways of thinking about time that have happened over the the centuries and millennia, uh, which are quite different to the the particular way we think about time in Western industrialised countries now. Jenny, let's backtrack a little because this line of thinking began for you during the lockdown years in the US and it started with MOS. Can you explain what Moss set you thinking about? Yeah. Um, so I I mentioned in the very beginning of the book that um, some moss started growing in a planter, um, basically in my window, uh, probably from a spore that blew in from outside. And, you know, really kind of focusing on it during the pandemic. Um, I think for many of us, that was the time when our the scale of our attention you know, really shrunk to our homes and our surroundings. And I just had a lot of time to contemplate what time would mean for this moss. Um, something that I learned from an amazing book by uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's an indigenous American writer, um, is that moss can go dormant for decades without water and then it can come back. And, um, and some, you know, just a simple fact like that really complicates, I think, the idea of time, um, what time means if something can be sort of dead for that long and then it can come back to life and time sort of restarts for it and then even on a kind of everyday level i live in an area that has a lot of moss you know when you walk around and after a rain the moss changes very quickly within a matter of minutes it looks different and it's sort of a a visual expression of these changes in the moisture in the air and so that was something that was really um really vital for me during the pandemic because i think depending on your experience that was a time when it was very easy to feel like all time was the same. Um, you know, like every day is the same, every hour is the same. Um, as I put it in the book that work and leisure were two different tabs in my browser on my computer. And I think that grabbing a hold of these moment to moment changes and this acknowledgement that actually no moment is the same was something that really got me through the pandemic. When it sits in stark contrast to the way you uh, draw our attention to things like how labour was first uh, broken up into blocks, that kind of spreadsheet approach approach that happened on, say, plantations using slave labour and forced labour and how we broke down man hours at the time in, into these kind of exchangeable, uh, fungible goods. Uh, and I love those contrasts where we're invited to think about different ways of uh, experiencing and, and conceptualising time. But Jenny, those are, I guess, the external uh, pressures on us, the the economic structures around us. But we also have internal pressures, don't we? Even people who might have a bit more um, control of their time in terms of finance or privilege still feel this pressure to achieve and kind of extract the most from their time. Where's that coming from? I mean, I think that that is really a part of the same history. And one of the things that was the most fascinating for me was when I was researching something like Taylorism and, you know, these uh, sort of turn of the century innovations in factory labor and this obsession with efficiency, you know, around that same time, there were already writers who were interested in applying those principles to oneself, uh, how, how one understands one's own life and identity. Um, and so, you know, I, I quote, there's an amazing book called Increasing Personal Efficiency. And I think that title tells you everything you need to know. But that book is from the 1920s. And so this idea is uh, is not new. And I, I was just really struck by how sometimes it's the exact same language that was used uh, in factories or, or aimed at factory managers. 
except now it's it's showing up in this more kind of like self-help self-personal development context and so now the idea is that um you know you you are both the factory worker and the factory manager and your job is to um, squeeze the most value out of your own kind of man hours um, as opposed to, you know, a factory manager trying to make their workers work faster. And it's a, it's a concept that's very alive and well. I, I coined the term in the book productivity bros to describe, you know, a, a specific kind of genre of content creators who are making videos about, you know, waking up at 4am and crushing your morning and sort of like being hyper efficient all the time. And um, I think, you know, there is a part in that chapter where I, I actually include a, a report card that I had made for myself as a child to give to my parents to grade me as a person. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, it's pretty, it's a, people really uh, respond to that part of the book because the reason I put it in there is because I wanted, I wanted to make it clear how I, w- I want to kind of re- let the reader off the hook if they're, if they are one of these types of people that feels like they always need to be doing something because I think, it's important to acknowledge that, um, you know, in a lot of cases, that was something that you were taught from a very early age. There's a lot about schooling um, and, and the way time is treated in school. It's very um, competitive and very much reflecting that idea of getting getting the most out of your time and getting ahead. And that if you get ahead, someone else is not getting ahead. Um, and so I think it's just it's a little bit easier to um, counter that ironically, by realising how deeply entrenched it is in you. Yep. Jenny O'Dell is our guest today. Her latest book is called Saving Time, and it is a fascinating and very wide-ranging look at our ideas about time and, and the practical implications that they have in the world. I'm loving seeing your texts come in too because they are so diverse as well. One says, I'm ADHD. We have a diagnosable tendency to time blindness. We can't imagine future states automatically, which is why, for example, we often forget things we need when leaving the house. And we have no idea how long tasks are going to take, even regular routine tasks. This person says, it was wild watching neurotypical people during the pandemic freak out when they developed what ADHD people recognised <laughs> as time blindness. We live like that all the time. And another text, I mean, people, I guess, report that stretchiness of time happening in very different ways. We, we've talked before about the early parenting years, but this text... A while ago, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer in brain and lungs and had a profound realisation about time. It took 13.8 billion years of stars collapsing and cosmic convulsions beyond imagining for us to exist for a paltry 80-odd if we're lucky. We're incredible and life is incredible. And then we squeeze that miraculousness into an economy and therefore time. When sitting in the chemo ward, you realise that you only truly have two things, time and your attention. Many people I met in their regretted not directing their attention to love and living. And I guess, Jenny, that's the crux of this for a lot of people, isn't it? That we do still have to exist in this economy. I mean, we, we need to give or sell our time to put food on the table. How do we manage that and combine that with with freeing ourselves from these structures around time and, and making sure not all our time is laid down as quantifiable and exchangeable? Yeah, I mean, that is the question. And, and you know, actually several, um, the, both of those beautiful comments really reminded me of um, something towards the end of my book. I talk about time and disability. And there's um, a writer who I really admire, Sarah Hendren, who um, has written about having a son who has Down syndrome and how that has really changed her. Or it's made her realize how much economic terms are used in how people just talk about time and about the value of a person. 
Um, but the thing that I really took from her writing that I think kind of addresses the question that you just asked is that um, if you look at people who have written about time and disability, um, they make this point that, you know, there's a question that goes beyond disability that it, where you, you sort of end up asking, is the nine to five industrial kind of workaday clock humane for anyone, <laughs> right? Like not just for someone who has disability and it's actually the people who can't exist um, within that, that kind of structure or people that that clock wasn't built for who are in the best position to critique it and show all of the things that are wrong with it. Um, and so, I mean, I remember similarly hearing that um, during the pandemic, people who had had chronic illness were saying like, oh, now everyone else has the same relationship to time that I've always had, which is that I could never plan that far or in that way, like in advance, I couldn't have the same controlling um, relationship to time. And I think that that's a really valuable perspective, um, given that everyone at some point in life is going to age, they're going to you know become ill, or they're going to have to care for someone who's ill. And I think that, you know, looking at those perspectives is a really good opportunity to think about ways that we collectively could try to make time feel a little bit more humane for everyone, whether that's through, you know, um, through organizing, through, you know, things like minimum wage campaigns, um, through, you know, paid leave policies, like these things, again, that kind of exist beyond the individual. Um, and, you know, I think that my book is also addressing the individual and, and kind of trying to find everyday ways to think differently about time. But I, I think it's important to sort of note that that's obviously not enough by itself, that if we really want to liberate time for more people, you'd have to sort of look at these larger um, structural things. Yeah, I want to talk about those everyday ways to think differently about time in a moment. But yes, as a, as a parent of a child with Down syndrome myself, I think that's certainly true. And we've got a long way to go before we learn better how to listen to the voices of people with intellectual disability to help us make some of those changes. When we think about practical ideas for change, Jenny, the four-day week might spring to mind, a way to give people more time for themselves while still sitting within that economic structure. Those structures that we rely on right now what are your thoughts on those moves i mean i think it's it's definitely promising to me that that's being considered at all um because i think one of the things that um that i was kind of trying to seize upon in the book was the the moment of interruption that the pandemic created i think it did um allow us to maybe question some things that had come to seem unquestionable and you know one of those things is the five-day work week which um you know hasn't been questioned for a long time so I find that promising. Um, but I guess the sort of caveat that I have with that is that um, I think it. I can imagine a scenario in which you would have a four-day work week, but you were asked to work more intensely during that time. Um, or, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, if a lot, a lot of my thinking about time is sort of against the quantitative sense of it. And, um, and I think sometimes what, sometimes what you need is not necessarily more hours in the day or more days in the week, but more control over your time and how it feels um, either on or off the job. Like there's so much about the experience of time that has to do with whether or not you have power, whether or not you're on someone else's schedule throughout the day, if you're having to wait for them or rush for them. Um, and those are not necessarily yeah, quantitative issues. So I think a 40 work week would be amazing if it genuinely did let people feel like they had more autonomy with regards to their time. But if it's just a sort of intense, further intensification of work, I don't know if that's necessarily a net gain. What about ideas about universal basic income? If you divorce the the money side of things from the work side of things, would that help us reconceptualize time? 
I, yeah, I definitely think so. And that was something I, I looked a little bit into for the book, you know, looking at pilot studies. Um, there have been some studies in, in Stockton, California, which is actually not far from where I live. And and you really do see that, um, you know, one of the first effects that it has, obviously, is it gives people more time. Um, and it also allows them, I think really importantly, allows them to um, plan further ahead. So I think there's this thing, you know, the trap that you can fall into if you're always just trying to make it to the next day, for example, or you're just trying to um, make ends meet there. You're on a very sort of short time loop. Um, you're not able to think about, you know, moves that you could make that are maybe strategic in the longer run. And so um, that's, those are some of the things that I saw in terms of like how people were, were using it in these pilot programs. Um, and I think, yeah, just uh, even on just like a large conceptual level, the idea that um, someone that you could just lessen the pressure, right. That like, you could make it so that um, time feels like money a little bit less just because you're a little bit more supported. You're hearing Jenny O'Dell on Life Matters today. My name's Hilary Harper on ABCRN, and there are some fascinating texts coming in, Jenny. I'll read a few. Siri says, really interesting to contemplate time and how it can be rethought to be less rigid and more pliable. The example of self-help at the start uh, can be... Uh, and that work can be thought around menstruation was laughed at. But Lucy Peach's book, Period Queen, is about how women listening to their bodies and not going by the 24-hour clock but by their cycle is actually right on point with the ideas of time explored in the interview. It's about making menstruation less taboo and way more about contemplating time in relation to one's body. That's from Siri. I was only laughing at the idea, Siri, that you would tie the menstrual cycle to the work schedule because, as you say, it's a different way of thinking about time and a much more human-centred way of doing so. Uh, Another um, text, uh, when my sister-in-law self-destructed recently, my concept of life and time in particular has brought out an affirmation of doing things well and being more aware of every minute. Maybe not enjoying my crappy hip, though, says Annie in New South Wales. (laughs) Yeah, that that focus has a double-edged sword from time to time. And another says, can you speak about the cultural differences in the concepts of time? Jenny, I wonder if we could do that in the context of the, the way you write about um, the, you know, that idea of time as money is being in, inextricably linked to the way we think of our planet as an exploitable entity. Are there First Nations ideas about time that could be useful here? Yeah, definitely. And I actually, um, I cite... Um, uh, Tyson Yunkaporta's book Sand Talk um, quite a bit actually in the middle of the book as well as some uh, North American indigenous writers um, who yeah are really articulating this um, notion of non-human agency and um, sort of non, non-linear time although Tyson Yunkaporta says you know that that's even saying non-linear ma- makes linear kind of the the default right Um, but yeah, I, I think one of the things I was most struck by was, um, in the history of kind of seeing how, um, this notion of abstract time was exported, um, you know, through the colonies, um, that European colonists were showing up in places with exquisitely developed, you know, senses of timing, like when, when things would happen, um, in an environment. So, 
um, when the specific tree is flowering or when, you know, these specific fish are arriving and that um, like so many uh, activities in the sort of calendar was so, um, so specifically based on that. And it was, it was so deeply ironic to me that, um, you know, these colonists would show up and, and declare um, that these people have no sense of time, um, that they, they are timeless people um, and that they have no sort of orientation towards the future or the past. Um, and they, and the, for the colonists, actually having your clock and your calendar be divorced from natural cues was considered a sign of modernity. And it just, it's like one of those things where when you think about it for any amount of time, it makes no sense. And I think now we're really like living in the midst of the result of that way of thinking, like the result of, of thinking that, um, that everything in the world is that, that we would consider non-human is, is doesn't exist in time, doesn't have agency, and it's just a resource to be exploited. Like the the end of that story is climate change, um, which is something that indigenous writers have have you know been recognizing for a long time. So that was something that was really um, important for me in the book. Yeah, I love how in some parts of Australia it's not you know spring is here, first of June, or you know winter is here, first of June. Yay! It's like this is the season of. X plant or Y bird, as you say. We're speaking with Jenny O'Dell about her new book, Saving Time, which is an extraordinarily wide look and deep look at some of the ways we think about time and some alternative ways to think about time as well. Jenny, before we wrap up, I'd love to talk about some of the uh, ways that you'd like people to, to think differently or act differently in their lives after reading this book. I noticed that one of the suggestions that you have is to be more mediocre, which I have to say is a bit weird coming from someone with two amazing books who's not yet 40 (laughs) how do we apply that to our lives yeah i mean i think that's just you know it's not it's not necessarily i think many other people have sort of made this this suggestion you know oliver berkman who wrote four thousand weeks i think writes really beautifully about this but i think i'm you know it's really just kind of calling for um a reflection on what it is that we you know individually and collectively really want i think um, both this book and my previous book are are sort of haunted by this um, feeling that they're that we're looking for something in the wrong place. Like um, you feel that you need to achieve, you know, you need to achieve more and more. You need to get ahead. But I think maybe there's there's a possibility that the person who feels that way actually is really just seeking connection and meaning. Um, and is not going to find it by by doing those things. And so I think really what I um, what I'm advocating for in the book is, um, you know, thinking about time in this more collective and social way and thinking about, you know, obviously what is possible when we work together for change, but also that 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 might actually just be more rewarding. Like I talk a lot at the end of the book about my concept of aliveness versus this kind of um, hyper-efficient drive, which is a very Silicon Valley thing. And I I grew up there um, to make your life longer. But, you know, kind of suggesting that maybe what we really want is to feel more alive in every subsequent moment of our lives and that the way to do that is to be attentive to the time and the agency that is all around us, not not in the 24 hours that we supposedly have. So the, the idea is not to kind of squeeze more hours and years from our lifetimes in order to have a, a bigger external legacy, but to uh, change the ways we relate to ourselves and others to, to have a better quality of time while we are on Earth? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that's um, something that you can only really get to by giving up a little bit of that desire to control everything and to optimize everything. Um, I mean, for me, the times that I, that the time has felt 
um, the most maybe expansive and I have felt the most alive were when I was in encounter with something or someone that was surprising, um, you know, like something that I didn't necessarily expect or, or that, you know, created some kind of moment of defamiliarization for me, which is still what I'm sort of striving for as, as, an, uh, as an author. Um, so I think maybe just sort of rendering oneself open to those kinds of surprises and encounters and not trying to control and optimize everything all the time is, is yeah, kind of what I'm suggesting. Okay, I'm breathing very deeply right now and trying to calm down at that idea, but <laughs> I think a lot of people are <laughs> that personality type where they're thinking, I'll need a few moments yeah. to process this. Jenny, it's been such a joy to have a bit more time on Life Matters today to, to go into these yeah. ideas in some depth. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Jenny O'Dell uh, has written a book called Saving Time, and it is a corker. It's, it's just so full of ideas. You're going to need a while to process them if you read it. Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, a follow-up to her bestseller from 2019, How to Do Nothing, which, again, is one of those books I really would like to read and have not yet read, which I think says something about my life. Someone else who thinks a lot about how time can trap us is Genevieve David. She's a psychoanalyst and clinical social worker whose practice is grounded in the idea that we can free ourselves from some of the pressures that the modern world imposes uh, through therapy. Genevieve, welcome to Life Matters. Mm, Hello, good morning. We've been hearing Jenny talk about the feeling that there's not enough time in the day to be productive or get everything done that we want to get done. Is this something that you've been seeing in your practice, people coming in feeling pressured from these drives? Yes, well, I I hadn't really thought about time scarcity um, until I read her book this week. Um, But yes, I think time scarcity was more thought about in an existential way. But I think whether we're talking about not enough time in a day or not enough time in life, the human body responds. We only have this one body from mild to extreme levels of anxiety. So I guess during the pandemic is a good example of sort of the existential stress and working in New York in the basement office where time really got very interesting. Um, I saw a lot of hopelessness, despair, emptiness, loneliness, the anxiety of time running out, not having enough time to have children for women, um, not enough time to write a book. Um, I'm just talking about some of the issues that came through the door, feeling stuck. Um, And then there were those that actually just ate, drank, partied. Uh, In New York, there were a lot of um, parties throughout the shutdown and uh, So some people coped in that way. So why do you think this is something that is happening in our particular cultural moment, that people are feeling this kind of um, pressure to squeeze the most from their hours and and a kind of disconnection from what they truly want to be doing? Well, I think that particularly now we're still living as if in the pandemic, I think. Um, And there is a sense of being hyped up Um, I find people speaking more quickly, people feel busy and they're planning as if uh, that might help the feeling of time slip away. Although not everyone's showing up like that, of course, others seem to have simplified their life, slow down, take time to nurture relationships and make radical changes that they hadn't previously thought were possible. So, Genevieve, how can therapy help change the way we think of time? 
Well, in therapy, it is a place where the past, present, and future sits in one space. We are in the present talking about the past. In trauma, you actually see the past. Like, for example, there's a little boy I know who was in 9-11. And he will, if he hears a helicopter, he will go down onto the floor um, without even thinking. That's the past living in the present. And then there's the future also in the therapy room. So I see it as sort of a, a counterculture where for one hour, although that's still cultural, it's one hour, it's time and it's money, there is this experience of stepping out of a kind of time into another space where we co-create something very different, which allows for people to really explore their internal world, get closer to themselves, their bodies, their sensations, their memories, their desires, um, in a way that brings them more alive and more joy. So when you say co-create that different experience, what does that mean? Well, I see it as a co-creation is, we talk about co-creation because there's a therapist and there's a, two people in the room. So like with a best friend or someone, even a stranger you might meet, there is a particular kinds of conversations that everyone I think has the experience of where you just disappear. There's just the conversation. There's just a meeting of ideas and things spark and ideas grow and sort of a brainstorming and you go into the state of flow. And I think therapy, when it's really working, has that quality where time disappears. It's really a shock when the sort of 50 minutes comes up and you're kind of co-creating a new experience of yourself in the world. That's a fascinating way to think about it. We're speaking at the moment with Genevieve David, who's a Sydney-based psychotherapist and clinical social worker, bouncing off the ideas of Jenny O'Dell about time in her new book, Saving Time. Jenny talks about that idea of stretched out time, and you've talked about how we can experience time differently as a kind of eternal present in trauma, but also in memory, you know, when memory mm -hmm. intrudes mm -hmm. into our daily life. What are some uh, less fraught ways to experience that stretch? out feeling in our everyday life, given that most of us do still have to sit within that economic framework of mm -hmm. breaking down the hours, Genevieve? Well, as a, a Buddhist psychotherapist, which I have to kind of get out of the closet, and there is um, mindfulness meditation practice is something that I've been practicing for a long time. And I, in my experience of doing mindfulness practice, um, which is not emptying the mind, as many people think, that has another capacity to stretch time in a day and allow for more um, a sense that there is enough time for everything. And it may also be how one then begins to think about um, oneself in the world as well. It may shape that. But, but it is a very important piece, I think. Yes, and indeed. There are many apps that, that are suggesting that people are... Are, um, yeah, it's a proliferation of apps. 
on Facebook we, we asked what uh, some ways that you've helped time change for you, speed it up or slow it down. And Lisa says, work, the days are interminable. Sharon says, it's a naff response, but it works for me, mindfulness and meditation. And I think the research bears that out too. Uh, Linda says, turning all of my clocks five minutes faster. True. And Paul says, same. And Linda replies, I know it works, right? I'm thinking of going all out and making it 10 minutes. So there's lots of different personal approaches to this idea of changing our experience of time. Genevieve, mm-hmm. just finally, uh, Jenny talks about alternatives to clock time uh, that you know have been found at different points in history and different parts of the world. And you, I understand, uh, also argue that a childlike perception can be useful sometimes. Can you tell us just briefly about that? When I was introduced to this question initially when you called, um, the story of my uh, my eldest son, Jack, is 30 now. And when he was in primary school, he started to tell me, Mommy, you can stop time. And his experience of the mornings as I gathered the three children for school was his mother saying, we're going to be late, we're going to be late. You know, over and over again, I'd say that. And yet we were never late. So his conclusion was that I had stopped time, which is seen um, by Dogen, and a Zen master calls that being time. So time is experienced through your being. And I think young children experience this this way. So, yeah, how do we bring that sense of childlike time back again? And I think Jenny talks about it a lot. She writes about it so beautifully. For example, in the moss that you talked about, her capacity to, to really be with the present moment, to experience life as it is, to experience nature, to really, and she talks about getting close to our communities, whether they be people or animals or plants. That is like the childlike wonder that I think um, we could all bring more to our lives. Certainly, there are a lot of people saying, yes, I would like to do that on our text line. Genevieve, thanks so much for your perspective today on Life Matters. Pleasure. Thank you. Genevieve David is a Sydney-based psychotherapist and clinical social worker. We're bouncing today off those ideas about time uh, that Jenny O'Dell has written about in her new book, and you heard her speaking earlier today on the program. Up next, do you volunteer? We've been talking about the meaning of life today, and this fits right in on RN. RN Drive with Andy Park. Current affairs. Culture. And everything in between. Please clap at your radios and internet streams. It's Mr. Tom Ballard. That's a banger. That's a lot of It's all in the handle. I'm like, sorry, have you got somewhere you need to be? The very <laughs> emotine behaviour. Yeah. The era of artificial intelligence is very much here. Grace Tobin. He's right when he said it's all pretty weird. <laughs> RN Drive with Andy Park. Today from four on ABC RN. The Australian economy would crumble without volunteers. They do millions of dollars worth of labour every year, plus the unquantifiable gift of their time, their connections to others, the way they show people that they're cared for, the way they build community. And for some people, it goes both ways. Volunteering can be a chance to find a sense of purpose that might otherwise be missing and reduce the impact of the negative things in life. I'd love to hear from you what volunteering has meant for you. What does it mean? What does it give you? What do you give to it? How good is it for our mental health too in different circumstances is our question today on Life Matters. Mark Pearce is the CEO at Volunteering Australia. Hi, Mark. Good morning. Great to have you here. And Dr. Grant Blaschke is the clinical lead at Beyond Blue. Grant, hello. Hi there. Mark, volunteering can seem a bit like a one-way street. We're giving up our time for the good of an organisation or a group. What are some of the things that volunteers get out of it, though? 
It's it, it's a great point you make, and it's a good place to start when we talk about volunteering, because even in the definition, the definition is a little one way. It talks about time willingly given for the common good and without financial gain. Um, and it does seem one way, but we know, we know from the research, we know from the anecdotal evidence, we know from participating ourselves that that involvement with community, that opportunity to be engaged in something meaningful is really powerful and it provides very, very significant benefits to the volunteer. So I will oftentimes say volunteering benefits both community and the individual. And of course, we as individuals are part of that community. So it is quite a virtuous circle that uh, we see the provision of time, the engagement within community, the pursuit of passion or interest uh, uh, volunteering um, will create opportunities and pathways and just make our lives fuller, richer and more meaningful. How do you quantify that, Mark? I mean, what kinds of things do volunteers say to you? Is it, is it just a, a boost to mood that they get out of what they do? Yeah, so we during COVID, and I suppose th- this is this is a a, a very uh, statistical response. But during COVID, we conducted some research with the Australian National University, which sought to understand how people coped with the lockdowns, where volunteering wasn't an option for them. Because of course, we saw that um, at the worst times of lockdowns, two in every three volunteers had to stop volunteering altogether. And when you consider that was on the back of around about 6 million uh, Australians who volunteered through organisations and into community, it's a big chunk of community. And what the research told us was that for those people who were able to continue to volunteer during the lockdowns in COVID-safe ways, their mental health was better than those who had to stop. So merely the engagement and the participation in community uh, sought or, or brought better mental health outcomes. I think the other thing, and I was at the beginning of National Volunteer Week last week, I was fascinated to see a new report by the Australian Institute of Family Studies, which found that if a child is involved in volunteering before the age of 13, the odds of having poor mental health are reduced by about 28%. Wow. Um, and that's a contemporary piece of research. Um, but it, it does correspond quite nicely with the research that we see done both domestically and internationally across all age uh, groups, across all social courts, that the engagement in volunteering, as long as it's appropriately managed, as long as it is done well, as long as there isn't overwork and overstress, produces good results for people. And we'll talk, look a little uh, in a moment at, at how you do that well. But um, Dr. Grant Blaschke, from your perspective as a GP and the clinical lead at Beyond Blue, uh, what are the conditions that produce that boost to mental health when volunteering is done well? Yeah, so we certainly know that there are improvements in mental health and quality of life. And that's generally so people have a sense of purpose, sense of connection, good for your self-esteem. But also for my patients or people we see who are experiencing depression or anxiety, it can be a really helpful part of the recovery. And for lots of reasons, for starters, it gets people out of their own head. 
there's often that, you know, too much introspection going on and it actually, they can have quite a good day and go, oh, actually got out of my own mind and, and was helping someone else. I think it runs deep. So we can look at all the various clever research studies and, and there are some excellent research studies that I, I really enjoyed hearing about some of those ones Mark talked about. But I think as Australians, it runs deep. It is about human dignity. It is about who we are other than just consumers and citizens and employees. And many of us who are lucky enough to be working live in sort of corporate managerialism where we start to feel like a little cog. And it's a real reminder that this is about dignity and about actually helping people out. So there's some excellent benefits. When you talked before about people with depression and anxiety uh, potentially getting a lot of benefit, I imagine there would have to be structures in place to make sure they were safe and felt included and supported. What would that look like? Yeah, so it is getting the balance right. And there is a risk when you're volunteering of burnout or causing stress. And one of the common traps is because you're working in the social sector, because you're doing good, is that you can be a bit boundaryless. And so often what I'm saying to people is your job is to do your little piece of the puzzle, but you're not going to fully solve homelessness, sorry. You're not going to fully solve climate change or whatever your issue is. So have clear boundaries, even though it's a very important issue, and have a sort of maturity with the workplace to say when you're doing too much and to actually have that well managed. And it's very important to get the role of volunteers managed well. And specified well, I understand. That's right. I mean, we know in the workplace generally, but also with volunteers, that the best way to stress someone out is give them a vague job description because they're not sure what they're supposed to be doing. And so making sure that people are put in positions where they've got the skills, they've got the mentorship, they've got the help, and they've got a good understanding of what to do if they're not managing. We're speaking with Dr. Grant Blaschke, who's the clinical lead at Beyond Blue and a GP, and Mark Pierce, the CEO at Volunteering Australia. And Mark, in the National Strategy for Volunteering that you released earlier this year, one of the key objectives was to focus on uh, the volunteer experience and making sure that it's sustainable. What would sustainability for volunteers look like, given that you're also doing this work on making sure those volunteering spaces are uh, culturally and psychologically safe and inclusive? I think that uh, for us, in terms of the development of the national strategy, one of those key pieces is understanding that at the centre of any volunteering uh, activity, uh, any community participation, is the volunteer themselves. And we can build lots of structures and we can have institutional supports and we can do all of those sorts of things. But until we focus in a uh, really meaningful way upon the volunteer and their experience, we miss something and worse potentially is that we harm the volunteer by not considering them their, their personal motivations, for example, what they're looking to achieve through volunteering, not having a strategic consideration of volunteering and that volunteer as part of the workforce. Um, we, um, we need to take a holistic view towards volunteering. The national strategy speaks powerfully to as one of the, 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 the key um, the three uh, key focus objectives is that the volunteer experience is fundamental. We see that uh, formal volunteer rates, that is people volunteering through organisations and into community, has been falling th 
through time. Um, it's been declining. Of course, it declined precipitously during COVID, as I mentioned previously. And whilst it's recovered to some extent, it hasn't recovered in full. And we know that that's because volunteering oftentimes isn't meeting the expectations of the individual. Community has changed, society has changed, the economy has changed. Our expectations have changed and volunteering is changing as a consequence of that. And it's really important that organisations focus on the volunteer um, as a fundamental, as an essential part of their workforce, uh, engage with volunteers in a professional way. So historically, we've seen uh, organisations have said, we have a workforce and they're the people who are paid. And then we have volunteers um, and they do this other stuff. And as you quite rightly said earlier on, it's oftentimes poorly defined, it's not um, well supported, and it's very poorly resourced. Um, we, we need to see, in order for the volunteer experience to be everything it can be, that it's considered strategically. And I suppose further to that point is the implicit understanding that volunteering covers every aspect of human, of human life. It's involved in every community. Um, I, I was really interested to hear Grant talk about the fact that it, it runs deep in Australia. I like to say that, you know, on this continent, this thing that we call volunteering today, with all of its institutional structures, has been taking place on this continent for over 60,000 years. It's not called volunteering. It was community participation, and it can be as simple as, hey, mate, do you need a hand with that? It's basically identifying a need in community and then developing a, uh, a response, a solution. Um, and when you see that in an institutional uh, structure and when you see it through organisations, it's very, very important that we consider the volunteer and all of their aspirations, their hopes and their motivations in terms of defining volunteer roles and appropriately managing them moving forward. On that, Mark, I want to read you this text. It says, I'm a critical care doctor in regional New South Wales and on my time off work, I'm a volunteer firefighter and a volunteer rescue member. I've been doing this for years and it's hugely fulfilling in addition to becoming friends with people from different parts of the community. You also get to learn great new skills. Much of the community don't realise that volunteers make up the majority of the emergency services in regional and rural areas. Gosh, you do if you've lived there, I can tell you that. But, I mean, Grant... Lashke, that's a really interesting question in the Australian context, isn't it? We do rely so heavily on volunteers for these really full-on challenging roles. I mean, turning up to car crashes where the worst of a human experience can be laid out before you. How do you make sure volunteers are supported in that context? And does Australia need to rethink what we're doing there? Yeah, we do rely on a lot of volunteers, you know, and including in those very full-on acute situations, firefighters. A few years ago, Beyond Blue did a study called Answering the Call, looking at our first responders, about 20,000. They weren't all volunteers. They were a mixture of police and fireys and ambulance drivers, but also a lot of volunteers. And we did see that there were higher rates of PTSD, particularly the longer they'd been at it, so those post-traumatic stress disorder sort of symptoms. But interestingly, the study found the most protective things were a really supportive workplace. Uh, and that was you know, borne out in the data. So that made a big difference to people. I think people who are volunteering, both in acute settings and more generally, should be a little bit aware of their red flags. 
So things like, am I getting really cynical about this? Am I getting unmotivated? Am I getting into conflict with people? You know, these might be little warning signs that you're pushing too hard and need to just step back a little bit. So I think we need to make sure that we're looking after our volunteers. And uh, to some of those uh, excellent points Mark was saying, I think getting the systems right um, is critical. And the risk, I think, is always in the social sector that people think, well, I'm coming from a good place. What do I need all the structures for? But probably even more so, you need very good governance and good support for people. So, I mean, if you were sure that those uh, good governance structures and support structures were in place, would you like to see volunteering recommended or even prescribed more grant as a kind of mental health intervention? So it's always a balance because you're sitting with someone who is already in a pretty vulnerable situation. They're already drowning a little bit and and they're often struggling getting through day to day. So you've got to be careful as a GP, say, you know what you should do. We really <laughs> need some a challenging help. situation. Yeah, we really need some help cleaning up the local park. Oh, thank you, doctor. So having said that, Part of recovery is what we call activity planning or scheduling, and it can be a beautiful thing getting someone back into the community. I think that during COVID, a lot of people, you know, metaphorically got off the train and they never really got back on. So they're very isolated. They're very lonely. And one of the very best things they can do is get involved. Now, they don't have to take on something overwhelming. You can do small steps. Maybe it'll be a one-off help out rather than locking into a weekly thing initially. Another good strategy is pairing up with a friend or a group and you go along together and and that can also create a bit of motivation. So no doubt there's great potential and in fact we, we often call it social prescribing. So, you know, rather than get that next prescription with the antidepressant on it, you might have a piece of paper saying, you know, join the local uh, group, they need some help on fundraising or cooking or whatever it is. But obviously you wouldn't be doing that without the intervention of your doctor and you may still need the antidepressants. It's uh, everyone's different. Dr. Grant Blaschke, thanks so much for your time on Life Matters today. Grant is the uh, clinical lead at Beyond Blue and a GP. Mark Pierce, great to have you on the program. Indeed, a pleasure. Mark Pierce is the CEO at Volunteering Australia. And I'll finish up with a, a couple of texts on volunteering. I volunteered in a charity shop for five years. I enjoy it a lot. The greatest problem is having store managers with the expertise to understand their helpers, says Jenny. We need appropriate training, as your speaker says. And But this contrasting view, Isabel from Melbourne says, I started volunteering my time and money many years ago to an area of animal welfare that was severely overlooked. I don't enjoy this work. It's been disrupted to my life. I had to give up certain more pleasant activities to be able to volunteer, but I can't stop because there's no one to take my place. And that speaks to Grant's point that you need to know when it's not serving you anymore and that, that it's not your job to fix everything, sadly. Uh, another says, I volunteer for Little Athletics ACT. It's helped me get my current and previous roles. I'm assuming they mean paid roles there. And another succinct text, all women volunteer. So that's at least 13 million. Thank you so much for your perspectives on Life Matters today. 
Is ageing something you embrace or something you worry about? Approaching a really big milestone birthday can feel daunting, but it can also spur us on to do fantastic things, those things we realise we don't want to die regretting. On our next episode, Beverly Wang will ask, how do you feel about getting older? Has it made you feel invisible or overlooked? Or has age given you a new kind of freedom and confidence? She will be keen to hear your thoughts on that too on Life Matters right here. I'm Hilary Harper. I'll be back with you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.